Matthew chapter 1 is divided into two parts. Part 1 provides the Messianic Chronicle in verses 1 through 17. This Messianic Chronicle establishes Jesus' Messiahship by proving that he is the promised seed of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. That chronicle also certifies Jesus' kingship by confirming his Jewishness, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and his legal and biological right to serve as king of the Jews. Part 2 of Matthew 1 continues to build on the Messiah's origin. In verse 18, Matthew states, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The term birth, genesis, meant beginning or origin, and was previously used in Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew used the genealogy to focus on Jesus' origin through his descendants. Now he focuses on the actual events surrounding Jesus' origin, more specifically, his birth. Matthew again confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. The term Christ, Christos, is not Jesus' second name, but his title, meaning Messiah or Anointed One. As the Messiah, Jesus is called by God and consecrated to be king. Hence, Matthew details the events of the birth of Jesus, the anointed king. If there's any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, part 2 of Matthew 1 focuses upon the messianic confirmation. Confirmation specifically through two signs, the sign of the virgin and the sign of the name. Now, the first confirmation of Jesus' Messiahship is the sign of the virgin. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now Matthew notes in verse 18 that when Mary his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now in the genealogy, Matthew notes that Joseph was the husband of Mary. Here he clarifies that they are betrothed to one another. Now the betrothal period was the first stage of marriage in Jewish culture, usually lasting for a year before the wedding night, and it's more legal than an engagement. This couple was legally bound as husband and wife, and during this time they had not yet consummated the marriage. As such, sexual intimacy with someone other than their betrothed was considered adultery. 
In cases of adultery, the betrothal could be dissolved by a divorce. Again, Matthew notes that when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. The verb came together, sunakamai, means to engage in sexual intimacy. Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. However, he cannot be the father because he and Mary have not been sexually intimate. Now, Joseph, knowing he was not the father, planned to send her away secretly. That verb, send away, apayo, means to divorce. Believing that Mary had committed adultery, Joseph was going to divorce her. Matthew notes two things about Joseph at this junction. He was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her. That Joseph was righteous, the chaos, implies that he conformed to God's law without failure. That the fact that he did not want to disgrace or publicly damage Mary's reputation speaks of his love for her. Despite believing that she had cheated on him, Joseph planned to divorce her secretly, lathra, or privately. Matthew also notes that while Joseph considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That verb, considered, enthumiamai, means to reflect deeply upon something. It implies that Joseph did not hastily arrive at his decision regarding his future with Mary. And it was during this time of reflection that an angel or messenger of the Lord revealed the truth of Mary's situation to him. First, the angel reminds Joseph of his messianic lineage. Previously, the phrase son of David had been applied to Jesus in the Messianic Chronicle. Now the angel notes Joseph's lineage. In essence, the angel is implying that when Joseph takes Mary as his wife, he will legally adopt her child as his, meaning that the child would also legally be the son of David. Then the angel allays Joseph's fear. The verb afraid, phobia, refers to anxiety. It reveals the depths of Joseph's emotional state. His decision regarding Mary weighed so heavily upon him that it was causing him anxiety and deep grief. Again, this underscores the depths of love he had towards Mary. Next, the angel directs Joseph. Not only should Joseph not be anxious regarding Mary's situation, but he should take her as his wife. In other words, Joseph should put away any doubts any thoughts of divorce, and continue with the betrothal period, which will ultimately result in the consumption of their actual marriage. Finally, the angel reveals the truth about Mary's situation. Contrary to Joseph's opinion, and likely the opinion of others, the child within Mary's womb was not the result of an affair, but instead was of the Holy Spirit. That is, Mary had conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit. No doubt Mary had already conveyed this fact to Joseph, but unsurprisingly, he had found the truth to be stranger than fiction. And can we blame him? Matthew provides some expo exposition to the angel's words in verse 22 and 23. 
he confirms that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. The specific promise to which Matthew refers is from Isaiah 7, 14, which reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. The term sign denotes a miraculous event performed by a divine being. Isaiah is clear that Jesus' conception via a virgin was a divinely designed, marvelous event confirming that he was the Messiah. Now we need to pause and ask, why is the virgin birth so important? It's important because it protects the deity of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the eternal God in human flesh. Humanity's sin nature is passed seminally through the male to his progeny, Romans 5.12. Just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. You see, while a woman has a sin nature, she does not pass her sin nature down to her children. If Jesus had a human father, then Jesus would have inherited a sin nature. If Jesus had a sin nature, he could not have been the spotless sacrifice required to appease God's wrath against sin. Now, some have scoffed at the idea of a virgin birth. One example of this is found in the book called The Bible Doesn't Say That, 40 Biblical Mistranslations, Misconceptions, and Other Misunderstandings. In that book, the author says, many English translations, misunderstanding the way Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament, insist on rendering the Hebrew of Isaiah 7.14 as virgin, even though it's clear that the original word there means young woman. Frequently, the motivation behind this purposeful mistranslation is to bolster the account in Matthew, reinforcing Jesus' virgin birth. You see, these skeptics claim that it would be better to render the Hebrew term as young woman. The proposition of a child born of a virgin seems inc too incredible to be believed by the sophisticated modern person. In line with the virgin birth deniers, several modern versions of Scripture translate Isaiah 7.14 as a young woman with child. Now, it ought to be noted here that Isaiah 7.14 has historically been translated as a virgin will be with child. However, should this verse be rendered as a virgin or a young woman? Consideration must be given to the actual term Isaiah used, Halma. The term Halma denotes a marriageable girl or young woman until the birth of her first child. This term is used seven times in the Hebrew Scriptures, including Isaiah 7.14. In each of these seven references, the term Halma describes a young woman who is a virgin. Genesis 24.23 uses the term to describe the potential bride for Isaac. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and may, and may it be that the maiden, that the Halma, that the virgin who comes out to draw, unto whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar. Exodus 2 verse 8 uses Halma to describe Moses' sister as unmarried and thus still a virgin. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, that is Moses' sister, go ahead. So the girl, the Halma, the virgin, went. 
The poetic books of Psalm and Proverbs use Hama to refer to virgin women. Psalm 68.25, the singers went on in the midst of the maidens, the virgins, the Hama. Proverbs 30, verse 19, in the way of a man with a maid or with a virgin. Song of Solomon refers to three types of women. Queens, which are married. Concubines, which are women having sexual relations with the monarch. And maidens, or virgins. Song of Solomon 1.3, therefore the maidens love you. The virgins love you, the Alma. Song of Solomon 6, verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens or virgins. Halma. And of course, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear, and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in six of the seven references use Alma to refer to a virgin, why would Isaiah's use of the term in Isaiah 7.14 not be rendered and understood as a virgin? Interestingly, the translators of the Septuagint understood the meaning of Halma. When translating, they consistently rendered the Hebrew term Halma with the Greek term Parthenos. The term Parthenos strictly refers to a woman who has had no sexual relations with a man, i.e. a virgin. Furthermore, when Matthew quotes the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy in Matthew 1.23, he translates the term Halma with Parthenos. You see, the prophecy of the virgin birth did not originate with Isaiah. The original virgin birth prophecy predates Isaiah's prophecy by at least 3,300 years. Following the fall, God cursed the serpent, the earth, and humanity. While spelling out the curses upon the woman, God revealed that from the woman a descendant would come who would destroy the devil. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15 is what we call the Proto-Evangelium or literally the first gospel, the first messianic prophecy of scripture. The Savior would be from the woman's seed, her seed. Now, interestingly, the term seed, zira, is a singular masculine noun meaning offspring. And while seed or offspring can refer to a group, the promise of seed was not just a guarantee of descendants, but to a specific descendant. According to Strauss Concordance, the term seed, zira, designates the whole line of descendants as a unit, yet it deliberate, is deliberately flexible enough to denote either one person who epitomizes the whole group, i.e. the man of promise and ultimately Christ, or the many persons in the whole line of natural descent. Precisely so in Genesis 3.15. One such seed is the line of the woman as contrasted with the opposing seed, which is the line of Satan's followers. Now, the term seed, zira, always refers to the fertilization of a woman's eggs by a man. That the seed is associated solely with the woman in Genesis 3.15 indicates something unusual or miraculous occurring in the conception process. Indeed, a woman conceiving a child without copulation is miraculous. Now, returning to the narrative, Matthew notes 
that following the angel's announcements, that Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph halted any thoughts or plans regarding divorcing Mary. By obeying God, he chose to suffer the social stigma of marrying a woman, supposedly carrying another man's child. Knowing the truth behind Mary's conception and the child's divine purpose far outweighed the opinions of others. Matthew also states that Joseph took Mary as his wife. The verb took, paralambano, implies the idea of receiving to oneself. In other words, Joseph went ahead with a public marriage ceremony and received Mary as his wife. Matthew also notes that he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. In other words, they did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. Matthew emphasizes this fact to remove any doubt regarding Mary's virginity. Now, Mary's virginity is also emphasized in both Matthew and Luke's genealogies. Both accounts confirm that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and remained a virgin until after she birthed Jesus. Throughout Matthew's record, i.e. Matthew 1, 2 to 16, he uses the active voice of the verb ganao, was the father of. The active voice of ganao means uh, that the, or refers to rather, the male agent responsible for the conception of a child. For example, Abraham fathered Isaac. He was the male agent responsible for the conception of Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob and so forth. However, note what happens in verse 16. Matthew changes to the passive voice of ganao. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. The passive voice of Ganao was born indicates Joseph did not sire Jesus. As well, note the prepositional phrase, by whom, ekhas. That phrase, by whom, is a feminine pronoun which points back to Mary, not Joseph. In other words, Joseph was the husband of Mary, but it was solely Mary who was involved in Jesus' birth. In the Lucan genealogy, Luke 3, 23-21, the phrase son of is used to convey that so-and-so birthed so-and-so. In the Greek, every usage of son of in Luke 3, 23-31 is preceded by the definite article the, except in verse 23. In Luke, 20, in Luke 3, 23, it states that Jesus was supposed the son of Joseph. There's no definite article in verse 23 preceding the phrase son of Joseph. Now in the Greek, the lack of a definite article conveys something unusual. In fact, what it underscores is that while Joseph was accepted as, jo as Jesus' father, he was not the physical father. Now regarding the vitality of the virgin birth, John MacArthur states, the virgin birth is an underlying assumption of everything the Bible says about Jesus. To throw out the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity, the accuracy and authority of Scripture, and a host of other related doctrines that are the heart of the Christian faith. No issue is more important than the virgin birth to our understanding of who Jesus is. If we deny Jesus as God, we have denied the very essence of Christianity. As well, Millard Erickson states, 
If we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible, and there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to the other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. Now, the second confirmation of Jesus' Messiahship is the sign of the name. In Semitic culture, a name expresses the nature of an individual. And here, two names are given. Jesus and Emmanuel. These two names describe who the child is and what he will do. Matthew 1, 18-25 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he called his name Jesus. Now the angel here explains that while Mary will bear a son, Joseph was to call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Latinized form of the Greek name Iesus, trans, which transliterates the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. His name means Yahweh is salvation, which reveals the purpose for his coming. As the angel explained, he will save his people from their sin. No doubt. This is an allusion to Psalm 130, verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities or sins. Now, unlike his Old Testament namesake, Joshua, Jesus does not save people from physical danger, but from spiritual danger, such as sin, death, and eternal damnation in the lake of fire. As the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 states, the Son of God is called Jesus because he saves us from our sins. And no salvation is to be either sought or found in any other. Now it must be understood that Jesus or Joshua was a common name of the day. Three of the 72 translators of the Septuagint bear the name Jesus. Josephus also references 20 different individuals by the name of Jesus, including some who were contemporaries of Jesus. In Acts 13.6, Luke records the existence of a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Also in Colossians 4.11, Paul mentioned his co-workers in particular, Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, in order to differentiate Jesus, the son of Mary, from all the other men named Jesus, he is often referred to as Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Nazarene, i.e. Jesus the Branch, and Jesus the Son of David. Besides the fact that naming Jesus denotes his purpose and coming, calling him by a common name underscores what? It underscores that he came to save ordinary people. Matthew confirms that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, the specific prophecy to which Matthew refers is from Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Again, the term sign, hot, denotes a miraculous event 
performed by a divine being. According to Isaiah, Jesus is conception via a virgin, and the name she gives to him were divinely designed, extraordinary events confirming that he is the Messiah. Now, while Joseph named the child Jesus, as commanded by the angel, it was Mary who called him by the Hebrew name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God's people are continually reminded that God was with them. The Lord your God is with you, Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. In fact, Emmanuel, or God with us, is a key statement within the covenants. In the old, in the old threshold covenant made in Egypt, God declared in Exodus 3.12, I will be with you. It was God's presence with them that set Israel apart from all the other nations. When Moses prayed in Exodus 33, verse 16, he petitioned God asking, Is it not by your going with us so that we and I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Now we need to note here that in Isaiah's prophecy, the emphasis shifts from I am with you to God is with us. Contextually, though exiled and oppressed, the people accepted and believed that God was personally with them. Previously, God had reminded them of his presence. Now, in times of danger, God's people must remember and accept that he is personally with them. Now, theologically, the name Emmanuel points to deity taking on humanity. This is known as the Incarnation. In the Old Testament, God was with his people in the sense that his glory filled the tabernacle. For example, in Exodus 25 and verse 8. However, God became flesh and dwelt amongst his people. In the words of the Apostle John, the second person of the Godhead became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18 Isn't it ironic that the word dwelt, skanao, means to pitch a tent or tabernacle? No, it's not ironic, but part of God's infinite predetermined plan. As the Apostle John states in Revelation 21 verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us. Previously, God dwelt among humanity in a tabernacle made of animal skins. Presently, God the Son dwells among humanity as the tabernacle of God that is in a tabernacle made of human flesh. From the moment of incarnation and onward, Jesus exists as the God-man, 100% deity, 100% humanity. There is no loss to his humanity, nor is his humanity lost to his deity. Theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. Practically, the name Emmanuel assures believers that the Son of God is present at all times with us as people. If not in body, then certainly in spirit. In Matthew 18 and verse 20, Jesus said that where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Matthew closes his gospel narrative with Jesus reminding us that he is Emmanuel. In Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. Indeed, even now, Jesus is God with us, as Paul assured the Colossian believers that Christ lives in you. That is, Christ lives in us. Colossians 1.27 Even now, we await the final consummation when Jesus will be with us. 
Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That Jesus is the Messiah is confirmed by two signs. The sign of the virgin and the sign of the name. Mary's virginity is not merely necessary from a biological perspective, but from a theological perspective as well. The virgin birth of Jesus is foundational to the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit created the flesh of the child within Mary's womb and infused the second person of the Godhead into that flesh. Truly miraculous. Hence we can say that the child was God incarnate or God in the flesh. Truly his name Emmanuel bears this truth. God with us. Because his humanity was conceived within the womb of the virgin, Jesus's, or excuse me, Jesus possesses no sin nature. Thus, as fully God, Jesus was able to pay the penalty of humanity's sin. He paid penalty of my sin, and he paid the penalty of your sin. And as well, because he is fully man, he was able to represent us as our substitutionary sacrifice. James 1.17 declares that every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The perfect gift from heaven, given to the Father, was wrapped in the virgin's womb and called Emmanuel. His virgin birth and name confirmed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and that he came to save his people from their sin. Now my friends, anyone who rejects the virgin birth of Jesus rejects that he is God in the flesh. If Jesus is not God in the flesh, then he's not sinless. If he's not sinless, he cannot be the Savior of anyone. Each and every one of you listening needs to examine whether you have received Jesus, the Messiah, as your Savior and Lord. Listen, you can claim to repent of your sin, and you can claim to believe the gospel, but if you reject the virgin birth, if you reject that Jesus is the sinless God come in the flesh, then your profession of faith is but a sham. That child born of a virgin and named Emmanuel is indeed the Messiah. That he is the Messiah, he is confirmed to be the Messiah, is a reason enough to celebrate his birth. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you that as the Father of lights, you sent down to us the perfect gift. The gift of your Son. Wrapped in the, within the womb of Mary, and then once came forth, wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in the manger. I thank you, Father, that in the miraculous manner in which you performed this, while we cannot understand how it occurred, we believe, we accept, because you've said it, that the second person of the Godhead was infused in human flesh within her womb. That, Father, we praise and thank you that your eternal Son willingly left heaven, the all-present one, and chose to be localized in a human body. 100% human. A, a human nature, yet without sin but a human nature nonetheless, so that he could be our substitutionary sacrifice. 
Father, I pray that each time that we get to be reminded of the birth, we would not forget what that baby in that manger represents. It represents the eternal God becoming flesh, being because virgin born, the sinless flesh, so that he could go to that cross and die in our place. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that gift, because through that gift, we are able to receive the gift of salvation. We pray this, these things in your Son's name. Amen.